UFO Radio. I am speaking with Jason Burrito Lover McClellan. How are you? Oh, now I'm really hungry, man. Oh, yeah. You know I love burritos. Yeah. I don't know if we've talked I, about that before, but... Uh, I think we have. <laughs> we probably have. It's been a while, though, but that you're a major burrito lover. And, of course, I am... I, You know, not to be cliche, being Mexican, I, I grew up on a micro... And I love them. Yeah, I can't get enough, and uh, yeah, you really ruined the show for me now because I really mm, all I can think about is burrito. Sorry. But thanks for bringing that up. And uh, by the way, I'm fantastic, Alejandro. How are you? Good, good. Well, and I'm thinking about tamales because I'm making tamales this year again. Getting to be that season. Yeah, it's a holiday tradition in the Southwest mostly. That's right. A lot of people don't know. A lot of the Mexican food that we know of in the United States is actually Southwest food more mm -hmm. so than uh, like Mexican. But right. um Tamales being one of those, and uh, my I used to when I was in Colorado, my sister's boyfriend would make them, but I haven't gone back there for Thanksgiving the last couple of years, so I've uh, I, you know, tried it myself last year, and they turned out pretty good. So uh, I've honed my skills and uh, gotten better recipes. So this week tomorrow I will be rolling some tamales for the 2014 holiday season. Well, that also makes me hungry, and uh, I, know. I wish you I wish you luck with that. That's a fun process. It's gonna be delicious. So, awesome. yep, Turkey Day coming up. So I should let people know, and um, this is kind of cool because it it kind of fits with uh, Thanksgiving. Is that uh, Thanksgiving? Of course, was about you know the Native Americans and the the colonists working together when uh, at uh, America was first starting our Guest for today is Artie Six Killer Clark, and we've had her on the show before, uh, speaking about her book uh, on Native American uh, legends. It's called Encounters with the Star People, Untold Stories of Americans. However, she's got a new book coming out called Sky People, Untold Stories of Alien Encounters in Mesoamerica. So this is more of like the Central America and Mexico area, uh, the tamale-eating regions <laughs> that, uh, and their legends because she spent a lot of time out there. So this is really cool. Uh, Artie Six Killer Clark, for those of you who are not aware, she was a professor emeritus at Montana State University and uh, – Really interesting stuff. So this is going to be a lot of fun. And what's cool about this stuff is it's not really recorded. I mean, 
a lot of this uh, is local legend that is verbal. So really, you have to go down there and meet these people in order to get these stories, uh, which she has done. She spent several years out there and gotten some really interesting stuff. So a uh, great, fun interview for today. Perfecto. Yay. So that ought to be a lot of fun, and that will be coming up in a few minutes. However, prior to that... Jason and I are going to speak of UFO news. Do, 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 do. So UFO news of the week. What's uh, a favorite stories of yours? Oh, UFO news of the week. One of our favorite subjects to discuss, Alejandro. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to, to uh, pick a story here that's one of the many uh, UFO sighting stories submitted uh, to MUFON and written up by Mr. Roger Marsh, mm-hmm. communications director of MUFON. Um, and, you know, I don't usually um, talk too much about triangle UFOs because there's so many conventional things that could uh, explain many of what people report as triangle UFOs. Mm-hmm. But there's an interesting one from last week that was observed in Alabama by a driver he was driving down the highway and saw this uh triangle craft and at first he thought it was a small plane because just to where where it appeared in the sky just above the treetops and it was uh moving slowly and so up to this point in the sighting report nothing out of the ordinary nothing that would lead you to believe that this craft is bizarre in any way he saw the object he got a clearer view of it and saw that it was a triangle-shaped object, he saw the object hovering and saw it turn over, like completely flip over on the other side and and hover. And he saw interesting uh, series of lights and a sequence of blinking of the lights, blinking on one side. He describes the blinking. One set of lights would blink one, two, three, four, and then go dark. And then the other side would do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So we had this interesting uh, maneuverability of this craft that I haven't really heard in, in too many triangle UFO sightings before. Um, and certainly not something that like a, a drone, like a quadcopter or something is capable of doing, turning upside down. Um, really interesting behavior here. So what do you mm-hmm. think, Alejandro? Yeah, that is weird. Uh, it's a it, that story's really gotten popular. It's interesting how some of these sighting reports, even without pictures and photographs, get really uh, popular and a, a lot of hits. Yeah, and a I was lot surprised of by that. Yeah, but it is cool, and it seems like these triangular ones in particular, where once in a while you will hear of them kind of stopping and doing some sort of weird maneuver. Uh, in the air. I haven't heard, I don't think, of a total flip over like this, but I have yeah. heard at least several times that they will kind of turn on end where yeah. like the point is headed up and then kind of maneuver or fly away, uh, which is kind of weird too. So, yeah, kind of very interesting. And, of course, triangular UFOs, I think, capture the imagination uh, because they're so strange and, and uh there have been, you know, so many credible instances across uh, the, the decades of sightings well, of these things. And because I don't typically talk about triangle UFOs that, that often, I, I do want to point out here that I personally get really frustrated um, by people 
in the UFO field and, and UFO enthusiasts and, and armchair researchers and, and I don't know, the whole whole group of anything to do with UFOs and people who have, have casually researched it and think they know a lot about uh, what these UFOs are, especially the triangle ones. Time and time again, we hear people respond to us and say, oh, no big deal, that's not aliens, that's the TR-3B. And yeah. listen, people, there isn't confirmation that that is even a craft. Yes, we've got lots and lots of hearsay testimony and comments about secret black projects. But you know what? If the TR-3B actually does exist and it's this secret military craft or whatever, um, number one, it hasn't been that secret because everybody seems to know about it. And number two, they seem to have been working on it for I don't know how many years now. So either it's really crappy technology and they really need to test it out a lot or this thing doesn't exist. But mm -hmm. the thing is it's speculated and people – it's really, I think, throwing out a lot of UFO sightings when people just automatically say, a triangle UFO, that's TR-3B, that's military, let's throw it out. Who cares about that sighting? Yeah. You know, so I think it, it, it is detriment, detrimental uh, when people just chalk it up to the TR-3B when, again, we don't know that that actually exists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're, you're just getting us in trouble again. Jason, we always I get know. ourselves in trouble with people because I agree wholeheartedly. I've said this before and, you know, it was confirmed when uh, I spoke with David Marler who wrote a book on triangular UFOs and has done even more research into this. But uh, being in this field the entire, you know, for so long, uh, I've also, you know, looked at a lot of information. And like you said, there is no evidence for a TR-3B. There was a TR-3A, which was like a precursor to a stealth bomber, uh, but it was conventional. Uh, I think they just made a prototype or just designs. But uh, there, there's been no evidence whatsoever of a TR-3B using any anti-gravity. And like you said, everybody always throws that out. Oh, the TR-3B. Well, we don't know that they exist. They most likely don't. Other researchers, such as Bigelow, the uh, National Investigative uh, Institute of Discovery right. Sciences is how it went. Yeah. And they, had, they did a full-on study as well, and they found uh, these the TR-3B not to most likely exist. And what's interesting about their study, if people get frustrated, oh, they're debunking. Well, they're saying that it's not human, that these triangle uh, UFOs are real, but that they aren't, you know, they their conclusion was that they weren't made by, you know, humans. They're not ours. Yeah, yeah they're not yeah. ours. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, triangular configurations of lights in the sky, typically an airplane. Uh, I do like some of these night vision ones we've been getting lately that are really cool because they don't show any blinking navigational lights at all. Uh, and they, they kind of have some weird maneuvers at times. So those are kind of neat. And when people see a solid object, of course, that's cool. But like you said, a lot of these do turn out to be conventional airplanes. Right. Uh, but some of them, yeah, are just unknowns. Yeah, absolutely. So, And my, most likely, probably none of them are TR-3Bs. Sorry, guys. <laughs> They're going to get really mad over that. but uh, Yeah, you know, I put my money on that too, Alejandro. There could be other things, though. We do know there are, you know, Convent or there are uh, triangular craft out there. There's been some uh, photographed in the last year or so. The great photographs where they typically have contrails. Uh, mm -hmm. So there are triangular craft out there. There's there's craft that uh, 
Air Force Space Command has worked on and has given a little bit info about. Um, there's the Aurora, which there is more evidence for something like the Aurora existing and uh, possibly using like the scramjet or ramjet technology. But uh, so there are triangular craft out there. Yeah. So there are lots of lots of possibilities when it yeah. comes to possible identifations for these things, and that's why it frustrates me when people just write it off as TRPB. I know. I hear you. I hear you, brother. Sorry, sorry for sorry for the rant, but uh, I throw okay. it out there. And I did think this triangle UFO sighting report was interesting based yeah. on the the unusual behavior. Something yeah. We don't hear that often with the inverting. Pretty cool. And there are so, so many. I mean, there's a lot. Other than a, a single light oh, in the sky lot, doing yeah. some weird stuff, which is probably the most common, you know, there's a lot of triangular UFO sightings. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, off my rant, Alejandro, mm-hmm. what, what story would you like to talk about? You know what? I don't know that I want to talk about any in depth, actually. So okay. I think I'll just kind of, but there are some to note, I think. So I just want to kind of very quickly go over a few, I think. Sure. Um, that I think people should know about. So I think it's an interesting one, uh, this satellite killer, that this Russian satellite out there is doing some weird maneuvers, and I think it might be a satellite killer. I think it's interesting for our field because the whole story is about how, you know, there are secret military craft out there and, and kind of possible space war brewing with Russia, at least uh they are prepared for it, and they've made statements to that. So I thought that was an interesting story, one of them out there, huh? Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that just goes to show that for for whatever reason, I think a lot of the mainstream public is is under the, the illusion, I guess, uh, or the perception that, you know, NASA or any other body, you know, out there – knows everything that's going on and, and yeah. uh, everything that's in the atmosphere. And we've seen that with all the, the fireballs and things coming in that we don't find out till last minute. You know, I, I think people are blissfully ignorant and think that, uh, you know, the, the powers that be know everything that's out there and can tell us if we're in danger at all. But I think there is a whole lot in space that uh, nobody knows about. Yeah. Um, and, we do have these craft, and the the Air Force has their secret space yeah. plane that they've been launching up with their secret payloads. And, you know, who's in space? Not that many people on the grand scale of things. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, just we, we, we talked about space law, and we did an article about that in Open Minds Magazine about just how it's the Wild West, and there are laws for space. But when it comes to enforcing, how's that going to happen? Because yeah. doing something up there, who's going to stop them? You know, this is the very beginning of things, and there are governments and military and crafts and things going on and, and being launched all the time, and we really don't know what's up there and what they're doing. It's a wild west in space. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and nobody can enforce it, like you said, so they're doing what they want. But So, uh, yeah, these guys, if they've got their, their satellite killing craft up there, who knows what, what else it's killing? Mm-hmm. Shooting down UFOs and everything else. Yeah, that's mean. Yeah. So this is kind of funny, too, because we posted three stories last week on crowdfunding. So I guess tis the season for crowdfunding. Now that I think about it, though, right before the holidays might not be the best time to crowdfund. That's um, right. You might want to do that, you know, after, uh, well. A couple yeah, months after. It's not like it's a gift you can buy someone. Oh, I crowdfunded for you. Oh, thanks, yeah. Dad. 
I would have rather had a video game or something. <laughs> but that's right. Uh, MUFON has got a Kickstarter out because uh, they would like to revamp their website and uh, database to make it more uh, friendly for researchers and for people submitting. The website design is gorgeous. It's a great website. Uh, and they would like it to make it easier for people to report and they're designed for that. If you look at it, it's very intuitive and it's almost like a game. It's like playing a game. It's real fun for people to report. And then for researchers, uh, the database is more accessible so you can do more queries against the database to be able to do things like track triangular UFOs better and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, that's going to be huge. Mm -hmm. So I love their ambition here. I, I hope they get the funding they need to, to execute this because they do have a wealth of information. I don't mm -hmm. think people realize just how much data comes into them. And... Right now, with uh, you know the way things are set up for their reporting, it is limited in uh, what data they can gather and, and what they can do with that. If they get this database and can put absolutely every single detail in there, that's going to make it so much, yeah. so much uh, easier and more valuable for for researchers looking into this stuff. Yeah, they need a lot more money. They want around. They want seventy eight thousand dollars to do this. Uh, they had, I think, a three-week Kickstarter, kind of a short one. There's only about a week to go, and they have 14000 which is quite a bit. But, uh, of course, they've, they've got a little bit of ways to go to meet that uh, goal. Yep, fingers crossed. Yeah, the second Kickstarter, which I think is so awesome, personally. I know a lot of people uh, are, are skeptical, and I can understand that for sure. But this is a group uh, who we've had on the show several times, and I know there are a lot of people excited about this as well out there because I get a lot of feedback when we have uh, the gentleman who is uh, heading this up on the show. But this is the Space Warp Technology. So we've had David Paris, the uh, adjunct professor in Nebraska. He does uh, is a works at University of Nebraska as well as other schools. Uh, him uh, some some graduate students and some engineers, some flight design engineers and such have gotten together and they believe that they've got, uh, you know, an idea on how to make space warp technology. So they've tested this in the lab. Now they want to build a drone that's, you know, like five feet wide or something that will actually demonstrate this technology. They want to get this thing off the ground so it flies around using space warp technology. So I think this is so cool and interesting. They're only looking at, well, they're looking at an 80,000 or something like that they want too. Um, but uh, you could go donate to them so they can do their best to, to get their project off the ground. And I think this would be really cool. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this on the air. I am so disappointed right now with the Huffington Post. They did post a Travis Walton blog I, I wrote today, um, but they they I don't think they've ever not posted one of my blogs, and they wouldn't post the blog on this Space Warp thing. They said it was too much of asking for money. I'm just writing about it. I just think it's really interesting, and it's fun. It's a fun sign of the times that someone, these, these you know, people are out there crowdfunding for Space Warp. How cool is that? It's really cool, and we've talked about uh, space warp technology, space warp research a couple times on the show before, um, and there's just – it's kind of – I don't know. It seems unreal to, to 
talk about it in yeah. an actual, you know, realistic way that it's uh-huh. so close that there are people doing this research. It's feasible. They have plans for warp engines, um, and this stuff is going to happen in our lifetimes. It's so exciting. Yeah, yeah. yeah so that's a really cool it's one to be a part of. Yeah, really cool. So people can go check that out. And the last crowdfunding opportunity out there is. Actually, I I would probably admit this one's probably the one that makes me the most excited, to be completely honest. I mean, I love the space warp thing, and hopefully it'll work. We'll see what happens with that. But when it comes to ufology, this is Robert Hastings, the author of UFOs and Nukes, uh, Extraordinary Encounters at Nuclear Weapon Sites. He's one of the best researchers out there. He's gotten over 150 interviews with military veterans who have worked at nuclear um, uh, missile locations and who have witnessed UFO sightings, some of which have had an effect on the weapons themselves. Usually it's taking them offline uh, and then getting them online. Uh, He believes this is a clear demonstration that they are interested, that somebody off-world is interested in this technology and maybe sending us a sign to these toys are a little bit too big for us to play with right now. I think the evidence he's amassed is, is very notable and incredible. He is hesitant to work with other documentaries on television. In fact, it's really funny. One of the TV shows that uh, I don't know if it was Hangar One, which of course you were on, or another show contacted him and he forwarded me his response, which was like, you guys are just going to screw it up and be inaccurate and make up lies and I'll never give you anything, even though you'll probably take my work and screw it up anyway. And you know what? That's a harsh response, but unfortunately, he's he's right. I mean, most of these shows don't care about the facts. And, of course, someone like him who is very meticulous wants to be have the facts represented accurately. And they should be represented accurately. And it is so disappointing that these TV shows don't seem to really care so much about the fact as, you know, the showmanship, uh, the sensationalism. So... Uh, so he's doing a documentary all on his own with all of these incredible people. He's got this short clip of it online that uh, just alone has some great stories from some very credible witnesses. So I really hope that he gets uh, some more funding. He was given a $100,000 grant, I guess, and he's gone through that. He's almost done. He just needs $25,000 more, uh, which sounds like a lot of money. But when it comes to crowdfunding, that's not really too bad. That's not too much. Um, so hopefully he can get that uh, and finish up this documentary. Unfortunately, it won't get on television, uh, so I don't know how widespread it will be. But uh, with any luck, we'll be able to show it at the UFO Congress, if not this year, next year. And uh, we'll be able to all purchase it and use it for research and show our friends and family the amazing, incredible information there is out there for this field. Well, I do hope, yeah, like you said, that uh, I don't know what the distribution is going to be like on it, but I hope it's easily accessible to the mainstream public because, you know, what he does um, and coming from a military point of view and with those military uh, witnesses, military testimony and talking about something as big as nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. um, that's something that, you know, the, the general public's ears perk up and they listen and they say, wait a second, here's – hear military personnel talking about ufos and saying that ufos 
you know, interacted with our nuclear weapons. This is kind of crazy stuff, but it's less crazy because of the people it's coming from. This is yeah. pretty, pretty intense. So the general public, I think when they hear that, that's some of, some of the most compelling information for them to start looking into this field and taking it more seriously. Yeah. So I really, really wish him the best and, and hope he gets what he needs. And like he said, that it's made available so people can actually get to it. Yeah. Yep. So good luck to him. And the last story I want to mention is a fun one, and I'm sure you're going to love to talk about this too because you wrote the story, and and we love to kind of poke fun at our good buddy Lee Spiegel. Um, speaking of the Huffington Post, uh, this video he did with this Swedish musician who's really famous there, I guess, named Elephant, which is a weird name, but this video, she came into town, We and uh, she was being interviewed by Rolling Stone, and she said, I want to interview a UFO person. And they said, well, could we videotape you this interview? And she said, sure. And so they reached out to the Huffington Post who provided them with Lee Spiegel, and they did this funny interview that they posted on Rolling Stone, and it reminds you of Between Two Ferns is what this reminds me of. If you've seen that, the comedian Zach Galifianakis, <laughs> is that his name? Um, yeah. Is that how you say it? But that's what it feels like because it's so weird and awkward. Just like, of course, that show, Two Ferns, is a, is a, uh, a parody, but this was real. So uh, I know I talked with Lee. They, it was long. It was uncomfortable for him because she's just a really strange person. And uh, he did his best to uh, answer her questions and be serious about things. And it just got so weird and and awkward. But in a, to me, I, I guess awkward is in. So uh, this is some genuine awkwardness that is a lot of fun and just hilarious. Well, you, you can tell that. You know, there was a lot that went on, and it's heavily edited, so yeah. you don't know everything that was said on either side. But uh, it is pretty funny, and it, you're right, it does seem kind of uh, curt and awkward at times, where, like, she'll ask a question, like, do you believe in aliens? And we will say, yeah, and if you're really asking me if I believe they've been here, I think they've been here a long time. And she like, she, you can tell she's into it because she's very, very passionate mm -hmm. about this and, and very much an enthusiast in the subject. Um, but her, her response is just cool. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Just has a short cool. And then under the next, next question. Um, but yeah, the, the best part of that was when she said she wants to be the first person to have a baby with an alien. Mm -hmm. And then, I think that kind of surprised Lee, and he said, you better get in line. Yeah, which is probably so, right, because other people, you know, would like to do that in this field. Well, I, I gave him a hard time, because I said, I, I don't know if that, that was Lee admitting that he also wants to have a <laughs> baby. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> exactly. It's pretty yeah. funny, and I know a lot of people, you know, think it's it's silly for us to, to point something like that out. They think that's detrimental to the field of UFOs, as a, as the serious research of UFOs. But look, this was on a mainstream platform. It was done by somebody mm -hmm. who is very famous, has a huge following, um, somebody who is genuinely interested in this subject, a genuine believer, wanted to talk with a legitimate, serious UFO researcher, somebody who's knowledgeable in the field. They got Lee Spiegel. I think that's huge props to Rolling Stone for doing that. Mm -hmm. And although it is playful, it's lighthearted, 
they do talk about serious things, and the mainstream public saw that. I think it is hugely beneficial. It's also fun for people like us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I had a good laugh with it. It was great. Um, and look, if, if something like that is going to be detrimental and, and, and you know cause ufology to collapse, then ufology is isn't very strong on its own. So exactly, sure a lot of people. Yeah, and it's like you know. Uh, the social aspects, the, the sociological aspects and how all of this plays out, I think is important, you know. Um, oh, I do too. And here again, you have people that are into this and regardless of what you think of those people, um, which is kind of rude of a lot of people, to be honest. I mean, these are people who are genuinely into this stuff and they have every right to be and they have every right to express it in, in whatever sense they want to. And I think, if anything, we should be happy that they're into it um, rather than it would be worse if they're debunking it, you know, I think so, um, or just dismissing it without any research. So I appreciate people doing whatever they can. And in the future, if this is the more and more mainstream it gets, and let's say it's it's you know taken for granted that yeah of course you know we're being visited. Well then you know we'll we'll see more of this kind of stuff. So right. um, it's just what it is. And uh, if anything, I think to me overall it's a good thing because it means the society is moving towards accepting you know all of the the phenomena. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So. And let alone it happens to our good buddy Lee. <laughs> all right, cool. Well, that's about all the news I want to talk about. What do you think? We covered a lot, huh? Yeah, we sure did. I think we knocked it out. Yep. There's more on spacing out, and Jason wasn't in it because you were moving into your new house. Yep. Still, still moving into my new. <laughs> but hopefully, you'll be. Uh, are you going to be in the spacing out this week? I should be. No, Good. We're, we're not doing a spacing out this week because Thanksgiving. Oh. I don't even know. Jason writes the scripts for those, and he's uh, he he's kind of the the uh, founder, or what's a better word? I mean, spacing out was your brainchild. That's a good way to. Put You're it. the father of spacing out. It's your hybrid baby, spacing out. Yeah, it's kind of a hybrid. It's kind of your hybrid alien baby. That's right. Yeah. So uh, okay, so yeah, no we, spacing out this week. I can chill out. I don't have to uh, worry about what shirt I'm going to wear on Wednesday. That's right. Don't stress. You know, take the holiday, relax. It's cool. All right. I'll worry more about my tamales. Yes, that needs your full attention. <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. Well, uh, let's go ahead and uh, talk with Artie. I am very excited to have Dr. Artie Sixkiller Clark on the line. Hello. Hello. How are you, Alejandra? I am doing good. How are you? I'm doing great. Well, it's really exciting to have you on the show again because you have a new book coming out. Yes. Uh, I'm very excited about it. Uh-huh. And uh, your uh, previous book is Encounters with Star People, Untold Stories of American Indians, and we had spoken uh, together about that previously. And uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your, your new book. Well, my new book is entitled uh, Sky People, Untold Stories of Alien Encounters of Mesoamerica. And um, it it came about um, when I was a teenager. I had a um, uh, a teacher hand me um, um, a book uh, entitled Incidents of Travel in Central America, Chiapas, and the Yucatan. 
And it was a story of two 19th century explorers who had gone to Mesoamerica uh, because they had heard rumors of these ancient cities that were built in the jungles. And after I read the book, and then she gave me the copy of Incidents of Travel in the Yucatan, which was their follow-up book, um, I decided that one day I was going to follow in the footsteps of Stevens and Catherwood, the two explorers. So I was, uh, in 2003, I actually set out on the journey. It took me seven years to complete it because I only wow. would, I would go down for a month or two weeks or something. And I actually visited every site that they had visited, 44. They actually visited 44. I ended up visiting um, 89 sites. Wow. And this uh, has got to span a few countries, right? Oh, yes. It's Belize, Honduras, Guatemala, and Mexico. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was just uh, an amazing adventure. But over the years, since um, I had decided that along the way, I was going to see if I could make contact with um, indigenous people that lived there uh, and and go to, you know, I had done a lot of research on the uh, incredible legends that come out of that that part of the world about Scott people and... um, individuals that came from um, beams of light to their village uh, down from the sky of um uh, there is that area is just rich in in stories of interaction with sky people and so i decided that i not only i had done the research on the legends but i wanted to follow up and see if there were any contemporary stories so using interpreters, guides, uh, drivers, I was able to come away with some amazing, amazing stories mm-hmm. of contemporary interaction with um, with UFOs, with uh, with uh, giants, with uh, little people, with sky people, and it, it was just um, it took me seven years to complete it, but it was it, it was an amazing adventure. Wow. So when you first uh, got into this, those legends, were th- are those legends in the history books, or was this something that you had to hear firsthand? Uh, some of the legends, uh, you know, are fairly, um, um, they are in books in Spanish, um, and but many of them were legends I, I uh, heard from people when I was traveling there. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in in uh, uh, Monte Alban, for example, which is the heart of the Zapotec Indian country, and um, there were um, uh, these three young men who approached me, and they were a part of a film crew, and they told me they identified themselves as being from the university, and they said they were doing a documentary on the the slash and burn that goes on in the uh, jungles there by the native people where they they cut the trees and they plant their corn crops and they felt that it, there was too much pollution being put into the atmosphere by this slash and burning um, uh, process and so they were doing a documentary film on it for their film class and so they mistook me for a tourist and said you know um, we'd mm-hmm. like to interview you and get your opinion." <laughs> 
on on this on on what's going on here. And you could look out if you're in Monte Alban, you're way up, you know, in the in the mountains. And Monte Alban was built on the top of a mountain, so you're looking out over the jungles there, and you you can see all the different little fires coming up throughout the jungle and where people are are burning to to plant their crops. And um, I told him I really didn't want to be. Uh, on their documentary, and mm-hmm. and my my uh, driver came and kind of rescued me and said, you know, that told them what I was doing, and then they said, well, maybe we should follow you. Your stories are more interesting than ours. We'll do a documentary on you, and then um, I invited them to join me uh, for a coke. We sat down and they started telling me a story about a nearby village where a being appeared on a rock. It came down. He came down from the sky on a beam of light. He stood on this boulder, and after several hours, he actually uh, became a part of the village. He taught the people how to do so many things. He took um, a, a Zapotec woman for a wife, and he lived there for many years, and he ran the village. He was the ruler over the village. And then when he, um, when his son, he had a son, and when his son married, and beca- when his son became an adult and married, he went back to the same boulder. He stood on it, and his beam of light appeared and hmm. took him back to the sky, and he was never seen again. And so they told me this story. And so, of course, you know, I go in search of this village. And in search of, of the ancient city that he was supposed to have built. And you would never even know that it existed unless somebody told you about it because it's not a site that is well known for, for tourists. It's along the side of a highway. Uh, there are no, no parking lots or, you know, any of that. And, um, but I went there and, and, uh, uh, you know, it, it, those are the kinds of things that happened to me along the way mm-hmm. uh, where I learned about a number of the ancient stories. Was this town then, was it, did there a town still there or just ruins? No, there's a town still there. Uh-huh. And the ruins, the town is on one side. It's just a village. It's not a town. You mm-hmm. know, these are small villages of people, maybe 20, 20 houses you know, uh, yeah. a village people, and then on the outside will be their fields where they go out and they burn the jungle and they plant their crops. And a lot of times what you'll see in these small villages when you're traveling out there is um, you'll see the women walking with the, with the corn, uh, you know, because they're going to... Most of these little villages will have places where they make tortillas, and they have these machines. So the women will carry their corn in the morning, you know, to have their tortillas made, uh, where a lot of them still make their own tortillas. A lot of them go to these uh, almost ancient-looking machines that, mm. that make these tortillas. And uh, they'll have their, their peppers and various things along the side of the highway drying in the sun. I mean, you know, you're not really? talking about going to... Oh, yeah, not talking about tourist areas. You're talking about, you know, very remote little villages mm-hmm. that... Uh, people don't go to, and mm-hmm. those are the kind of places I wanted to to search out as well as follow 
you know, in the footsteps of Stevens and Catherwood, because Stevens and Catherwood, when they went, you know, when they set sail from New York City, they landed in what was at that time called Belize City. Now, Belize City still exists, but at that time it was Honduras. It was British Honduras, and there was a civil war going on. There was a... Um, there was not only a civil war going on between the the Spanish and the natives, there was a war going on between the British and the Spanish over control of, of British Honduras. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it ended up that the English got a whole, got a section called what is today known as Belize, and the Spanish got the section that was known as Honduras. And the native people were just kind of left out, you know. Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. So yeah. that little village, did you ask them if, if the villagers knew of that story as well? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. And they all told me, you know, how they had, the the elders had had told them, the wise men, they called them, the wise men many, many years ago would see the craft come and it would it would come to that site. And they would stay there for, you know, several hours, and they would communicate with the wise men. And um, and and so, uh, and then they would go back to the heavens or back to the stars. So they, you know, it was a it was a common occurrence um, in 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 their great grandfather's day for these things to happen. And so they passed that word along. Wow, interesting. And what do they think of them now? I mean, do they? now have more contemporary ideas about this legend and that maybe these were uh aliens or something well they believe that they they look upon them as 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 um uh, you know as uh, as Scott people as mm-hmm. that came to visit them and to teach them things okay unlike uh, not not necessarily as ancestors now the zapotec you know uh, they uh, don't it, what's interesting about the Zapotec is they call themselves the rock people. They they claim they came out of the rocks, hmm. but but you know you go to uh, um, uh, other native groups in in uh, in that area, and they call themselves the cloud people. They came out of the clouds. You have which would indicate the sky, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so you have a you know a lot of different accounts. And you certainly have to be aware of what group you're talking to, um, you know, in order to make sure that you get your story straight. Yeah, interesting. So did a lot of the villages have similar stories? A lot of the villages. You know, one of the stories that, that uh, I, I was uh, uh, told was um, uh, in Belize. Uh, she was there was a story that was going around in Belize called the Stone Woman of Belize, and uh, legend goes back to the to the eighteen hundreds when a young man from one of the villages went hunting and he approached one of the ancient cities and at the base of the Castillo, um, which is the the Great Pyramid, um, beneath the base of the pyramid there was a cavern that went underneath it, and as he approached the Castillo, standing motionless before him was this beautiful, statuesque Maya woman dressed in a long white dress. The story was that she had red glowing eyes, and according to the hunters, she sparkled in the rays of the sun. 
He was so awestruck by her appearance that he threw his gun aside and he ran to the village. And after the telling the telling the people in the village about this woman of stone, uh, several villagers, including the local shaman, went to the site. When they arrived at the large mound, they at the mouth of the cave, the stone woman had disappeared. But there have been repeated accounts that the stone woman reappeared over over the last century. When I was there, there had been a recent account by a local shaman that the stone woman was seen ascending to a large silver disc that hung over the ancient site. Others who had been there said that they saw her climb the pyramid and disappear inside the walls of the pyramid. Hmm. And Stevens and Catherwood, the explorers I was following, they never followed, they never went to this village. But I, you know, I've kind of set up my schedule so that I had the freedom. If I heard a story, I went in search of that story. Mm -hmm. So I made that trip and... uh, uh, went in search of the shaman who said he saw the UFO. And um, and I found him. And uh, he told me that uh, the woman had such great power. His name was Albert Beto. And he said that the woman had such great power that she transfixed the, the men that looked upon her and that she made them believe that she she disappeared but that in fact if you didn't look into her eyes you saw that she was she was uh, she did not disappear she was a sky woman he said she was from the stars and that he saw her he never looked into her eyes he said he said she was magnificent she glowed like the stars he said she was so beautiful he said I saw her descend from the craft on a beam of light and she stood at the entrance of the pyramid and then she disappeared inside the cave but when she emerged he said she climbed to the top of the castillo and a beam of light came down and she entered the craft just as she emerged from it wow and i asked him i said well were you the only witness and he said there were several others but some of them said she disappeared inside the pyramid he said i did not see that but i avoided her eyes he said and he said, if you looked at them, they, she, it gave her power over you. Wow. Um, and so, so, you know, those were the kind of stories that I was looking at, because this was an ancient legend. Mm-hmm. And here are still stories in those jungles and in those small villages of people who have, you know, who seem to substantiate what those old stories say. Mm-hmm. Some people told me she was the Virgin Mary. You know, it was really interesting to to um, see the interpretation. Many times I found that a lot of the interpretation of some of the things they saw often had to do with um, their strong belief in Catholicism. Mm-hmm. You did, know, and... Did some of these legends predate... Catholicism coming to the area? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they did. This one did not because this legend they said dated back what what I have been what I was told was it dated back to the 1800s. Interesting. So, so were, that would be. Were there legends like this uh, that you read in the Stevens and Catherwood uh, research? No, no. They they were strictly. 
um, uh, you know, explorers in terms of geography and mm-hmm. archaeology. In fact, uh, Steve, uh, Stevens is called the the father uh, of, of of American archaeology. Wow. He was an um, uh, architect by trade, and uh, you know, and he uh, he was the one who drew all those fantastic painted all these fantastic pictures of of those ancient villages that today are considered, you know, still the best depiction of those ancient cities of anybody who ever saw them, you know, and before the camera, mm-hmm. uh, before the advent of the camera. And and, uh, uh, and and I went to, you know, they went to a lot of the big cities. At the time they were there, you know, the time they traveled, you know, practically all of this area was jungle. And they had to, it was very difficult traveling for them. Where today, you know, there's more roads. There were times I, you know, my guide had to had to go knock on doors and ask people if I could go on their land and see these places that Stevens and Catherwood had, village, had visited. Uh, there were times that people would actually take me themselves when they found out what I was doing. Hmm. Um uh, but I, I, you know, many times we just knocked on doors and said, you know, do you know where this place is? Or we believe this place is on your land because a lot, you know, the tourist areas that, um, you know, like, um, uh, you, you know, Chichen Itza and and Itza and and uh, Palenque and and uh, Ushmal, those places, you know, have been well developed. And and of course, Stevens and Catherwood went to all of those places. But those are the ones that tourists go to, you know. Mm-hmm. And they, and but, but they went to a lot of other places, and some of them literally have been destroyed. One of the things that that the Spanish did in many, many of those sites is they would go in and they would destroy the pyramids, and then they would take the stones from the pyramids and the cities and build churches with them. Mm, right. And. Or build churches, they would level them and build churches upon the foundation with the stones that had been used by the Maya. So, you know, you're dealing with that kind of thing as well. Mm-hmm. But it was an interesting journal journey, and I, one that will give the readers a totally different perspective on how our, how our neighbors south of the border really look at, at uh, you know, UFOs and um, um you know, and and my my interviews involved uh, uh, the, my youngest interview. He was he was twelve years old, and one of the oh, most wow. amazing amazing little boys, uh, Miguel. He will always be in my heart. Um, uh, what because, did he share with you? Well, he sneaked me in to a to a uh, a site that had been closed off by the Mexican government. It's a, but shortly before I arrived there, there had been um, a battle between the uh, federales and the village people, and six village men had wow. been killed. And, I don't know, I think 15, 20 had been wounded. But they had captured <laughs> like 75 federales and were holding them there, wow. the village people. And so when I arrive in this village and I go to this site, and the reason they were fighting was because the local villagers wanted more control over the ancient city that was there. And the government was unwilling to give it to them. So 
um, uh, when I went there, I, you know, uh, the first thing that happened to me is they put a chain across the road and demanded uh, 50 pesos to let me pass. Well, it was a, you know, it, it was a, a, a state highway, but we paid the 50 pesos, you know, uh, you know, and 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 we went on. And when we got there, there is a big sign, you know, no trespassing. Um, and so we're getting ready to leave, and this little little boy shows up on this ancient bicycle and says, I can take you in there. And I said, but it says no trespassing. And he says, well, that doesn't make any difference. I can take <laughs> you in there. And he does. He takes us into this site and takes us on a tour. And we climb to the top of this pyramid. And he he tells me, he says, if you would like to spend the night, you will see many strange things. And I <laughs> said, well, and my driver is over there shaking his head. You know, you are not going to spend the night here because this is not a safe region to be in, you know, with the, yeah. what's going on with the government and the soldiers and the federalities and all this and the villagers. But he told me that his grandfather once talked. They have a cenote there. And it was only air, only cenote within that whole region of Mexico. And he told me about how the the uh, um, when his grandfather was a boy that they came to that um, village and they they the they saw them go dive into the ocean dive into the cenote I'm sorry not the ocean dive into the cenote and go down and his grandfather was convinced that they came there and and these are men from the sky came there and removed all these artifacts that were in the cenote. Hmm. And the and cenote, thought, for people who don't know, it's like a pit, right? And usually, like, access to a waterway or... Right. I mean, it, it, you know, the the Yucatan is very dry. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't get... It's, it's very arid. A lot of the Yucatan is very arid. And so they have... But they have these underground water pits that open up and people get their water from there. And, I mean, they're just beautiful, too. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and and um, so his his grandfather had told him these stories, and he said that one time this archaeologist came, and he said he drained the cenote with approval of the government, and they didn't find anything. And then they came into the village, and they demanded that the villagers tell them, you know, if somebody had been looting things from this cenote and the villagers wouldn't cooperate they wouldn't tell him anything about the men from the stars he said so you know and he said if you will stay with me tonight you will see the men from the stars because they come here (laughs) and and every time he would say this and he said i said well i'll come back another time because my driver said it was just too unsafe to be there and he said well you won't come back no one ever comes back here Hmm. Once they've been here, they'll never return. But one day I do plan to go back there. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wanna, I wanna find Miguel, and because uh, he was certainly um, someone I'll never forget. Yeah, what an interesting story. So oh, he was, uh, he was such an amazing little boy, you know. Yeah. So I was gonna say that um, just like those pyramids that were kind of taken down and built into churches. I'm sure you probably ran across legends like that that were um, kind of uh, 
the perspective of the old legend was changed to fit uh, kind of the ideas of the church. Um, maybe, you know, for instance, something that was seen early on and uh, once the church comes in, it's translated as an angel or something. I did encounter that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, um, you know, it's it was amazing sometimes that some of the some of the stories I would hear, um, they would say um, um, the the the, the uh, priest had told them they were from the devil. Uh, do you remember and some of these so, stories? Huh? Do you remember some of the older stories? Well, these weren't older stories; these were contemporary stories. They would see, they would see these, oh, I see. Um, uh, um, you know, um, spaceships or entities, and the priest told them, you know, they were the devil. They were, mm-hmm. the, it was the devil at work, and so they they were very frightened because mm-hmm. of that. Uh, so I, you know, I found that very interesting because what you're have, having there is a mixture of of uh, religion with you know as an explanation of what they're seeing. Mm-hmm. And I didn't find that among American Indians, but I certainly found it among the Indians of Mesoamerica. Hmm. Now, did you so ever talk to any priests that? Uh... I did, and I wanted to tell you, mm-hmm. one of my drivers went to. Uh, they grew up in the same village. Uh, he grew up in the same village with his priest. Um, they were boys together in school. And the priest actually told me that he went into the priesthood because of his experience hmm. one night in his village. And he told me that when he was a boy, um, he said that he woke one night and there were lights in the village. And he had never seen lights in his village because there was no such thing as electricity or anything like that in his small village. And he said, even when I closed my eyes, I could still see the lights. And he said he tried to wake his brothers who were in the same bedroom with him, but he couldn't wake them. So he crawls out the window and he is immediately met by this alien. And he asks them, are you from the stars? And the alien told him yes. <laughs> and he said that that then uh, the alien put something up against his arm, and it stung. And he said he asked him what he was doing to him, and he said, nothing, it's just so that I will always know where you are. And he said um, that... Um, um, he watched as all the people in his village were taken on board this spacecraft. And he said he sat on this log and he watched all of this going on. And he said that the, that the, that the alien came to him and asked him, why are you sitting here and watching this? He says, because I want to remember everything that happens tonight. And the alien told him, you will not remember and he said, but I will remember. And he said, most people do not remember. And if they do, it doesn't do them any good to tell their story because no one will believe them. Hmm. And he said, so I decided 
that there's only one way I would know whether I was dreaming or not. And so he said, I picked up a rock that was between my feet. And when they left, I carried it back home. I crawled in the window and I placed it next to my sandals. And I got back in bed. And I figured if next morning, if I get up, if the rock is beside my sandals, I wasn't dreaming. And if the rock was not there, then I was dreaming. And he said, when I got up the next morning, the rock was there. Interesting. And he said, I think that night made me decide to be a priest. Hmm. He said, this spaceman gave me such a feeling of trust and kindness and love that I wanted to pass that message along to others. Oh, wow. Interesting. So he didn't feel anything malicious was going on, even no. though these people were being taken up into a craft and yes. then returned. Yes. Huh, that's he felt very like, interesting. Um, and so, you know, uh, Mateo, who was my driver, he took me to um, to meet him because, like I said, they were childhood friends together. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, Father Felipe told me, you know, his story, and I don't doubt for one minute that this priest wasn't telling me the truth. Mm, and he didn't think they were demons. No. Oh, no. Yeah. No. But, you know, it varied from village to village. Where there were larger, larger villages, and there seemed to be competition. You know, a lot of what's happening in, in uh, uh, like in Mexico, for example, a lot of the um, Pentecostal religions are moving in. And um, uh, they are taking a lot of of uh, the congregation away from the Catholic Church. Hmm. The difference being is that the Catholic Church, um, if you have ceremonies, basically you have to pay for them. Well, for the poor people, it's very hard to pay. Where if you go to a Pentecostal church, they feed you because wow. all the... People around the world are donating money to those churches, and they go out and they feed the people. Well, if you feed the people, they're going to come. Mm-hmm. Especially if you don't have a lot of food. Mm-hmm. I remember um, a story that was told to me years and years ago on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Um, an elder told me that that uh, the, the priest on the reservation had come and you know had told them now. Uh, tomorrow night is Christmas Eve, and you have to come to the church because um, uh, um, you're going to see Santa Claus. And he said, so we we thought Santa Claus was Jesus, <laughs> because he was always talking about Jesus. And he said, so we all go down to the church to see Jesus. <laughs> Because we don't know the difference between Santa Claus and Jesus. Mm-hmm. Jesus. And he said, that's why the word in Lakota was the same word for Jesus as it was for Santa Claus. Oh, that's funny. And, yeah. And and, and I think that's, that's what happens in a lot of the indigenous cultures, is that religion will come in and they'll hear these stories, and they're not sure what they're hearing or, not, or trying to make sense out of it mm-hmm. within their own culture. And so it becomes something that is not intended. But as long as it can control people sometimes, maybe that's, you know, that's all they, they care. But 
The Pentecostals uh, are making a huge inroad into pulling people away from the Catholic Church. And the Pentecostals, the Catholics have done more, I think, in terms of, of um, uh, for accepting the Maya religion and incorporated it into their teachings than the Pentecostals, because the Pentecostals will tell them everything they do is of the devil. Hmm. But the Catholic Church doesn't say that to them. And it doesn't term the the um, um, the sky visitors or the star people or the aliens as devils, mm-hmm. where the Pentecostals do. Now, I don't know if, if you feel this way, but it seems And I don't like... know that that's true across the board, but of all the people I interviewed, right. that was true. Yeah. Although it seems like Native peoples, and, and I don't know if it's the same down there, are not as dogmatic. It's almost like uh, a not understanding kind of the hard and fast rules that are, are the hard dogmas of some religions. Well, I agree. You know, I, I think they, and that that's, uh, that's the reason why I think that, um, that in many of these villages you'll find the, the, the Catholic priest working along with, you know, the local uh, shaman or the, the, the local healer or the, you know, the local wise man, you know, I heard him called a lot of different things, you know, wise men, the healers, the shaman, uh, and I always think of shaman as being more of a, of a English term, you know, mm-hmm. than, than a local term, but, um, you'll hear them use that word on occasion, you know, the local shaman, and I've even heard you know, I was in one village in Honduras where a native woman approached me, and she she had told me that that uh, um, the local priest had predicted my coming to their village. Wow! And I said, "You mean the Catholic priest?" And she says, "Oh no, no, no." She says, "I live in the mountains, and in the mountains, our priest, the priest we have, the local priest." So she was talking about a native. Na- so she they even call them priests sometimes. You oh know? wow! And um, but the native priest had predicted that that I would be there, mm-hmm. and she goes on to tell me how she knows I'm the person that he predicted would come. Hmm. Um, there's a lot of superstition intermingled too. You know, when you uh, start talking to people uh, um, about different explanations of what they have seen and you know what is going on. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is, and of course too. You know, I mean, a lot of the descriptions, they described these, uh, um, some described the spacecraft like uh, uh, propane tanks. Hmm. Well, we all know that, you know, we've heard the cigar-shaped yeah. um, uh, craft, but their best way of describing it is like a propane tank, because that's what they're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really interesting. Now... With uh, the shamans and uh, or the wise men that you've talked to, you know, in these rural areas, are they mostly all accepting, or even do they take it for granted that there are sky people, that there's people oh, coming yes. from the skies interacting? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Do they mostly, if not all, have their own stories? Um. I think it depends more on the village that you go to. Uh-huh. 
uh, because it's generally, uh, the stories are generally related to a particular village. And not all the stories, that, not all, you know, by far over half of the villages that I, you know, you go to um, Palenque, for example. Now, Palenque, there's an old story that's told of around Palenque that um, there was a being that came to Palenque and that this being built this structure and he would get in it and it would take him to the stars. Mm-hmm. And he ruled Palenque while it was being built. And that Palenque was supposed to be the place where all the knowledge of the universe was the, to be stored. Mm-hmm. But after Palenque was built, the people who built it refused to live. So it never became the storage center. Hmm. Now the Hopi say that to the south of Hopi land, there is a red city that contains all the knowledge of the universe. Well, the red city to the south of the Hopi land is Palenque. Hmm. So there's so much connection with all of these different legends that, you know, if you study history, and, and I, you know, I have a degree in history, I love history. Yeah. Um, you know, you start seeing those connections, and you start, uh, you know, seeing that, you know, there has to be more mm-hmm. than just that we are on this earth. Well, it's interesting, yeah. too, that the Native Americans in the U.S., uh, you know, it seems like, and maybe even Canada, you would know better, all the way down to Mesoamerica, what you're describing now, have a similar idea that uh, these beings came, come and go periodically to teach us things. Absolutely. I was told by one elder a really fascinating story of how the aliens live among us. Mm-hmm. And he said, um, they come for 16, they come every 16 years. And they stay. And they assume our, you know, the, the, they, look, they, they can assume um, uh, to look like humans. They assume the identity of humans. They work with our scientists, they work with our medical people, they work with our our leaders, and nobody ever knows the difference. Hmm. And then they're gone for 16 years. They said in 2000 they left the planet Earth. They will be back in 2016. Cool. And so he said that hopefully the world will survive that long until they come back. Mm-hmm. And they can set us on the right path again. Hmm. Yeah, it's just um, so interesting how similar that concept is uh, throughout all of the different, you know, because being here in the Southwest, we, you know, and and uh, having an interest in uh, this stuff myself, yeah, throughout the years, it's a similar kind of story. Have you have you ever seen the the handprint on various? Uh, uh, pictographs and things mm-hmm. throughout the Southwest. Yeah, my mom, in fact, was uh, the superintendent at Petroglyphs National Park in Albuquerque, uh, where they have a lot of them, and we would go visit sites um, throughout, especially the Southwest. Well, I was in a place in um, uh, Guatemala, 
And my driver, Mateo, and I, we, we just, we had, I had spent the night at his sister's house, and he had, he had taken me to, to, to meet his sister because she was an English teacher at a high school, and she liked talking to English speakers. And, and so I was invited to her house for dinner, and, and she had some teenage daughters, and I got, you know, they had a story to tell. And so I spent the night there at her house, and the next, I actually ended up spending a couple of days there in the countryside, and and so uh, when we started back to Guatemala City, he said, you know, would you like to take some side roads? And we came upon this. We pulled off the road. She had packed us a lunch, and so we pulled off the road, and we were sitting there eating. And and this uh, Maya elder by the name of Yak, he 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 came to where we were sitting, and he said um, he introduced himself, and he said. Uh, basically was wondering what we were doing there. And he said, well, you know, this is the site of an ancient city in the jungle, but he says most people don't even know it's here. And he explained to me that that uh, it, that um, at one time the government had said they were going to, to reconstruct and rebuild the city and open it to tourists. And he said they even came onto the land and they built a caretaker's hut. Hmm. But then they abandoned it. So he had been in the U.S. He had illegally been in the U.S. He had gotten enough money, he saved enough money to build his mother a home and his his siblings. And so he, um, when his caretaker's place was abandoned, he literally moved into it, took it over. So he was kind of the protector of this old ancient site, and he would chase off people who were trying to steal stuff and and uh, and nobody ever questioned his authority. You, you know, I mean, he lived there, and and he even had a little library. He showed me his little library of English books, um, and and he spoke very good English. And and when I gave him some books um, to add, I, I I always carry a lot of paperbacks with me, and I gave him some books to add to his collection. And he said, "Now I will show you around. That's my gift to you." So he took, you know, we came upon this 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 one particular structure, and it was um, um, he had built a wooden bench in front of it, and it was a stone edifice. And unlike many of the other structures at the site, there there was nothing more than that was nothing more than a pound mounds of rubble. This was a standing structure with a smooth arch over the doorway, but there were painted red hands decorating the facade. And he said to me, I built this bench because I like to come here early in the morning and communicate with the Shining Ones. He said, this was the altar of the Shining Ones. Hmm. And I said, well, who are the Shining Ones? And he said, well, they're the space people or the sky gods or the star- whatever you want to call them, he said. Extraterrestrials, aliens. They are the ones who left their handprints. And he said, you'll see them all over the world. And then he explained to me that, you know, there are 67, he said the Shining People tell him that there are 67 solar systems in a confederation, hmm. and that there are thousands of spacecraft that circle the Earth at any given time. But he says, our technology doesn't see them. And, and that's when he told me about the people who lived all over the Earth and how they, they rotate and they come on a 16-year cycle. 
and he said they left in 2000 and they will return in 2016. Interesting. I know. And, you know, and this was just happenstance that we happened. And he also, uh, he said that the Brothers of the Red Hand, he called them the Brothers of the Red Hand, that they traveled the universe and they left their imprints everywhere place they went. And he mm -hmm. said the Brothers of the Red Hand were sky men who traveled throughout the universe, not only the earth, but they were collecting knowledge of the universe. Hmm. And they held the secrets of the origins of all the peoples of the earth. That'd be cool and if a Mars rover took a picture of a, a handprint like that. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> I heard about it, but I, I, I've never been able to find it on the Internet. They must be there someplace. That would be neat. Yeah, what a, how fun. I mean, how adventurous of you to go do this. And you must have spent a lot of time then down there. Oh, I did. I spent a, I spent a, probably... If you put it all together, maybe three or four years mm -hmm. in in that part of the country. You know, one of one of the things is if I go to a village, and then the next time I went, I go back to the same village. You know, I was able to to to, to get um, the trust of people, and I had wonderful people who helped me. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I couldn't say anymore. You know, but you know, I interviewed them um, before I went. Uh, um, I, I, you know, um, really took a lot of time in deciding, you know, who I want. I wanted people that if they, if, if I could find them that were part indigenous, I wanted people that could at least speak one of the indigenous languages of that area, mm -hmm. you know, that I would be traveling to. And, uh, because, you know, there's like 15 different dialects of, of, you know, of the Maya. And so, you know, it was really important that, you know, that when I go into villages and I talk to people, because obviously, you know, a lot of the people don't even speak Spanish. You know, they speak their native language. Hmm. And, um, I mean, they have no reason. They don't. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you get down in the Yucatan, for example, they'll say, they'll talk about the Mexicans. Mm-hmm. And you'll have them, they'll say, you know, we better get out of here because all these Mexicans are coming. Yeah. And the first time they said that to me, I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. And I said, well, what do you call yourself? And they said, well, we're Yucatecans. How we're funny. not Mexicans. And, of course, they all date that back to the caste wars, you know. And, and of course, the Yucatan, the Yucatan is mostly populated by the native people, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I don't think uh, people realize that, that uh, unlike <laughs> America, Mexico has a lot of indigenous people who still live kind of in in the way they have for for millennia and yes. speak different languages and there's a lot of them out there 15 million mm -hmm. in Mexico so you know you and and a lot of them and that's just maya we're not talking about you know all the other right you know uh groups i mean you know uh, you go up into the chiapas you know that's where you know you walk down down the streets of the Chiapas, and what you see are Indians, Indian people. You don't, you know, you'll see a few tourists, but it's a town of native people. Mm -hmm. I mean, a city of native people, not a town. Yeah. You know, when you when you get up into the, um, um, you know, into that part of the world. Yeah. And uh, and the Chiapas is the state, not the city. You know. 
So you took these stories and you put them together in a book that's going to be coming out pretty soon here? It's going to be coming out in December. Okay. Um, and it's already listed for pre-order on okay. Amazon.com. Okay, perfect. And when you put these stories together, uh, was there a pattern that arose for you or, or some overall kind of discoveries that you made? Well, I think, you know, when you... you uh, um, you examine, um, um, you know, the stories, if you look at them as a whole, you know, um, you see themes that run throughout, you know, mm-hmm. you see so many of the stories that I, I was told, for example, uh, that the first thing they saw were balls of light, mm. and those uh, balls of life transformed morphed into uh, human-like entities. Um, I think um, uh, that was a common uh, thread. Um, I came across uh, people who, um, um, uh, you know, I think one of the most unique things, and I'd like to get this this point across, is that, you know, in, in a lot of the legends, a lot of the indigenous groups, including the Aztecs, believe that the Spaniards were gods mm-hmm. when they came to Mexico in that area, came to Mesoamerica. They thought they were gods. And I spoke with one elder who reminded me that the Maya did never viewed the Spaniards as gods. Mm-hmm. They never viewed them as technology, technologically advanced. He said, we knew techno- technologically advanced civilizations because we came from one. We never viewed the Spaniards as superior to us. And I think that sets the Maya apart from all the other people I've interviewed. Mm-hmm. You know, because that speaks statements and volumes, I think, of, of how the Maya... Um, believed in themselves, you know, and and how they did not recognize the white man as gods. The other thing I think that is so unique is that half of the elders that I interviewed told me that the Maya were not visited, that that these ancient cities were not built by ancient astronauts, that the ancient cities that they themselves were descendants of the of the sky people who came here. Mm-hmm. And those people lived on this earth, and they were the, their descendants, and they were were who the, who the Maya are. They brought their knowledge with them. They never, there is nowhere in their legends or their stories about somebody coming and teaching them how to live or anything. They brought that knowledge with them when they came. Mm. And that is probably the strongest um, information I received that would validate their belief that they came from the stars. Yeah, how interesting. Really interesting stuff and the consistencies, like the balls of light, you know, turning into right. humo- humanoid forms are things that are reported in, in possible alien uh, encounters, uh, but also in ghost stories, you know, you hear that a lot, too. Right. So. 
Really interesting. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show again and sharing all of this. And uh, I had to talk to you for two or three hours about this, uh, you know, because absolutely it was just wonderful. Yeah, it sounds like it. And luckily, because I know people love your last book, I think people are going to find this really fascinating. And it looks like the book will be out in time for Christmas. It looks like about December 22nd. Yep. Yeah, and you're going to hear about missing time. You're going to hear about fake pregnancies. You'll hear about physical examinations, huh. uh, abductions, and personal interaction with aliens. Wow. The difference is that it's all uh, described within their cultural context, and I, and and which is really brings a unique um, um, type of of. Uh, take on on ufo uh research mm-hmm. yeah really cool so uh those sound really interesting so i'll have to bring you on again i mean it hasn't been too I'd long love since. That. so we'll have to have you on again to talk about those things but uh thank you so much and uh good luck with the book and you have a great thank holidays you. you too and all your all your listeners out there happy holidays Thank you so much to Artie Sixkiller Clark for being on the show yet again. Very interesting. Um, you know, just it's fun to hear from her because you get this picture of being down there in Central America and visiting these little villages uh, in between, you know, uh, in the same place as all of these incredible Aztec and Mayan ruins. Uh, so it's got to be really incredible. So, uh experience and to live out there it's just so weird it's just kind of surreal that we have these amazing ruins out there many of which i know are still uncovered and of which you have all these little villages of people living around there and all of these legends and then it's so interesting we're having clifford mahuti speak at the ufo congress this year and he speaks about similar things that the zuni believe that Artie is is saying about these people in Mesoamerica. So the similarities are really striking, very, very interesting stuff. So it's great to talk to her. I definitely, uh, I've already pre-ordered my book from her, so I recommend that everybody do that. Uh, But you can go to her site, sixkiller.com, and see more about her. And uh, she doesn't have a link there yet to her new book, but you can go to Amazon and look up Artie Six Killer, and you'll see her book there, and you can pre-order. It's only like 15 bucks, you know. It, it was like less than 20 bucks, uh, but if you have Amazon Prime, I think you get free shipping or something. So, yeah, it's a great price, and it sounds like some incredible stories. So, really cool. Thank you so much for Artie for being on the show again. Well, you heard from Jason. It sounds like we won't have a spacing out this week, but we'll definitely have one next week. And if you didn't see it, we had one last week where we talked some more about Tom Carey and uh, these slides of an alien from Roswell. So we talked about that, talked a little bit more about that controversy and what's going on there. And it should be sometime early next year that they'll be revealing these slides themselves and some more information. So we'll keep you up to date to that. And we're keeping a close pulse on this. So you can be sure that um, as soon as those pictures make it out, 
we will get those out on our website with all the analysis that uh, is, is known at the time. So we'll get that to you, and, and we will keep a very close eye on how this develops. And hopefully there's something to it. Don Schmidt was just here at Phoenix MUFON, and I talked to him a little bit about it. And, and he thinks, you know, that uh, there, this may be something um, worth looking at. So we're excited for that. Hopefully it is. Uh, but I don't think you can help uh, but be a little skeptical because so many times we hear, oh, great stuff, and it doesn't turn out to be. But what will be great stuff, and I think we can absolutely guarantee this, is the UFO Congress because we're so excited. We're going to have Bob Lazar. He was on with George Knapp last night, and Jeremy Corbell was also on, who uh, George Knapp is uh, is friends with and very excited about as well because Jeremy's done some really cool documentaries of which will be revealed, premiered for the first time ever at the UFO Congress. So you got to check this out. Uh, so you'll see Jeremy's documentaries. You'll see Bob Lazar. You'll see uh, a lot of really great speakers. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Go to ufocongress.com for more. And uh, you can register there. And uh, just keep an eye at openminds.tv, of course, for more news and information on that. As well, we're selling out so quick, people. Tickets are really going fast. And we will, we really do have limited space. So register as soon as possible. And uh, you'll want to check that out. That's going to be a lot of fun. Thank you to Caleb Hanks, who does the opening and close music. You can find out more about him at clerkchronicles.com. He says that he's going to have some more music out as well, and he usually offers that music for free, and I think it's really cool music. I mean, I really like it. I listen to it periodically. Uh, you can also go to the Open Minds Radio website, and you'll see a link to that. Thanks to the PSN Network for having us uh, on. Thanks to Podcast UFO, who has us on the show regularly. And uh, we're going to be on End of Days Radio soon and Rome Radio, a couple interviews we're going to be doing. So it's really fun to talk to the community and stay in touch with everybody and share our information with anybody who wants to share it. So, um, But you can get it firsthand and stay up to speed at openminds.tv and also on our YouTube, uh, of which we put out a great Travis Walton video. Uh, last week I wrote a Huffington Post blog, Post blog on it because it shows some of the um, the visits, so the night sky watch that we did, and uh, some interviews with Travis, and at the courthouse where, you know, the, the guys were administered the polygraph tests, and where, as Travis said, if they would have failed them, they wouldn't have left that courthouse, because there's also the jail cell in the basement of the courthouse there. So, really cool video. You've got to check that out. We won't. We will be talking to you next week. In fact, uh, in between the holidays here, I, I should be doing an interview, and this is really cool. This is exciting, and this is years, literally years in the making. I'm finally, if everything goes smoothly, this week I should be able to interview Doug Trumbull. Trumbull or Trumbell? I can't remember how the last name goes. But anyway, this guy is a big hero of mine because he's a... Uh, uh, a special effects guru who did special effects on pretty much all of my favoriteest movies in the whole world, such as Close Encounters and Blade Runner and others. So I cannot tell you how excited I am to talk to him. He works with Mark D'Antonio 
from MUFON, and they're working on this UFOTOG project, but he's been into UFOs for a long time, and UFOTOG was his idea. So if uh, you haven't heard some of our interviews with Mark and you're not sure what UFOTOG is about, we'll talk about that and how he uh, began to get interested in this field. So really excited about that. That's most likely what we'll have on this week next week unless there's uh, some kind of scheduling issue but we'll, we'll definitely have his interview up soon so all of you have a wonderful holiday week uh have some great turkey but uh you know what this is a great time to go veggie just like actually coincidentally jason and maureen and i are all vegetarians and so we know that there will be no turkeys harmed in our festivities uh, for this week, and you should be the same. So this is a perfect time to save some turkeys. They're cute little guys. You know, if you're in California or even out out here, you see them in the wild gobbling around. They're really cool. Don't kill them and eat them, people. Come on. Have have a heart. No, we still love our, our meat-eater friends. Um, but uh, you have a great holiday, whether or not you eat turkey, tofurkey, or tamales, like I will be enjoying. Uh, have a great holiday, and we'll talk to you next week, people. Adios, muchachos. <laughs>